First world problems. I wonder where your hunger lies this morning. What help you're crying for. In our house it's usually Wi-Fi. What does your soul thirst for? Maybe there's something personal for you. A sense of purpose. Or something in your family that you're concerned about. Or maybe for your church here. Or for the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And please pray for us as we come up to the General Assembly. Um, It's not always an easy place to be. Or maybe your thirst is for the health of the wider church. Or for the wider world. For peace and justice and wholeness. Here in Ireland and throughout the world. Maybe your concern is for equality. Gender equality. Economic equality. For climate justice. Because those who are most affected by the changes in climate tend to be the people who have no vote, the poorest, who can't change the economy because they're disenfranchised and marginalised. Maybe your concern is for people affected by malaria or AIDS or diarrhoea. The daily things that take lives and destroy communities. I pray that God will give us hunger and thirst for right relationships at every level of human society, with God, with each other, and with creation. King Ahab didn't hunger and thirst for justice. He cared little for creation and less for the creator. But let's not be too hard on him. It's no small matter to be a monarch. I guess he wanted all the help he could get just to survive, so he hedged his bets, no doubt making political and religious alliances as he went. He brought in fertility cults and the worship of Baal and Asherahs, and so he led astray the people for whom he was responsible. No, I didn't start it, he said. I'm sure some of his royal predecessors had started the tradition, and Ahab embraced this tradition fully. This syncretism which denied the uniqueness and power of Yahweh, I am. The one living God who had proven sovereignty over all the godlets of Egypt and of the Canaanites. And God had enough to save his people from losing their identity and their soul. To bring his people back to life. To make the point about who he truly was as the giver of life, God decides to withhold rain and dew, to withhold life. The God that is giver of life seems to bring about drought and disaster. Don't tell me there's any such thing as a simplistic reading of the Bible. Baal and Asherah could be worshipped, but they could not and would not make it rain. Only one could do that. And so Elijah dared to face the oppressive King Ahab and to declare that there would be a drought. But to do such a thing was to sign his own death warrant. 
Ahab would brook no dissent, no opposition, no challenge. God tells Elijah to go and hide. I love it. Superhero, super prophet Elijah goes into hiding. Phew, takes the pressure off because sometimes I feel like hiding too. It's so practical, so human and so unheroic. And Elijah takes refuge at Kareth, Karit, apparently. It means a cut. It comes from the root word Karath that means to cut off, to cut down, to destroy. So maybe Elijah is simply cutting himself off, taking a break, so to speak. But by speaking truth to power, by his radical challenge to Ahab, he also effectively cuts himself off from power and from a safe and easy life. He's symbolically as good as dead. But even here at Kareth, the ravens, carrion eaters, birds associated with death, feed him, keep him alive. So God turns the consequences of sin backwards so that instead of fear, the birds bring food to the human being. How many of you have fed the birds? How many of you have been fed by the birds? But God does something really spectacular and turns the working of evil backwards so that instead of fear, we can receive life from vultures, grace from our enemies. Sometimes we receive what we need from unlikely places and unlikely people. And if you're tired of listening, you can just think about that for the rest of your time. Pause for a moment to think. Could God be providing what you need from an unlikely or even an unwelcome person or source? Could a symbol of death bring you life? Sometimes in politics and in work and in society and in our personal lives, we experience signs of hope, the sense that resurrection is real, that sins are forgiven, that death and destruction have been overthrown. I wonder is that how Elijah experienced his time of being fed by ravens, his time of being cut off at Kareth. And then the drought that threatens Ahab has consequences for everyone, including God's own prophet. The stream itself, called cut off, is cut off, dried up. All that impossible hope seems to be pulled away. I wonder, does Elijah feel devastated, disillusioned, disappointed with God? And the text doesn't tell us. In the deafening silence of a dried up stream, in the hollow absence of ravens who've flown off elsewhere to drink, there's time to listen, time to think, time to ask hard questions, 
and time to hear. Silence makes room for us to engage with the situation, to interpret according to our own experience of loss and isolation. What is going on here in my loss, in my dryness? Then in that silence of the dried-up stream, in the absence of those death-eating friends, the ravens, Elijah does hear that God has another plan, another way of providing. Do you ever wonder how you're going to meet the next challenge, the next stage in your life, the next stage in the life of the church, or the next stage in the life of this community? Who will pass on the good news of God's love to the next generation? Who will live out God's love to the community around us and around our children and grandchildren? Maybe your school or work are facing closure or job cuts. Who's going to provide income and employment for the people? Maybe your pension plan has a big hole in it and you can't see how there's going to be enough to provide for the days or years ahead. Maybe you just don't know how you're going to stretch your income to meet the costs of health care, rent, your children's needs. Maybe you're facing illness and old age and you can't see how you're going to get the strength to do what you had to do to fulfill your dreams and your responsibilities. I can't promise you that you will not face shortages. Elijah's stream dried up and you can't live long without water. So what's next? How, by whom will Elijah's needs be met? There's a time for staying where you are and waiting patiently for God to supply your need. But there are also times when God says, It's time. Up sticks, pull up your roots, move on. Leave the place where you have experienced God's miraculous and generous provision. Dare to trust that God is Jehovah Jireh, not just here, but in all the world. I don't know how we know when that time comes. Maybe because our mouths are dry, maybe because our thirst is intense and our hunger draws us to the source of life. What it comes down to is this. Will God abandon us? Will God, who sent Jesus to live and die for us, really not give us all we need? Either in the place of cut-offness or in the new place to which we may be called. Is God faithful? Elijah senses he must leave and he goes to Zarephath. Zarephath means smelting shop. A crucible, a workshop for refining and smelting metals. Standing as Elijah did against oppression and idolatry, speaking out for justice and truth can be a bit too hot to handle. The crucible is the place where metals are heated until they're purified, separating the dross from the pure metal. I'm told that the refiner knows the metal is pure when he can see his face reflected in it. 
don't know if that's true. That's what I'm told. Maybe God wants to see his face reflected in us. And so we are taken to Zarephath. The struggles we face when we hunger and thirst for righteousness may be the very struggles that purify our hearts. From cut-offness to the crucible. But in both places, instead of bringing destruction, God brings life against the odds. God specializes in unlikely providers. And this time, instead of ravens, it's a widow who God says he is instructed to feed Elijah. Well, when Elijah gets there, he finds the widow all right and asks her for a glass of water. But it seems she hasn't had the instruction from God about feeding Elijah. When he asks her for food, she says, I can't. I haven't got enough for myself and my son to live on. I'm just collecting these sticks to make a fire, to make the last loaf of bread, and then we're going to die. Is she being melodramatic? Or has she really got to the end of her resources? I wouldn't dare to judge. But put yourself in her sandals. She's been watching the oil and the flour diminishing, wondering how to feed her son, wondering when there will be none left and what she's going to do, not knowing if there will be a new supply. And as she's collecting the firewood, perhaps she ponders a strange dream she's had or the words of her mother that are ringing in her head, always to show hospitality, to be generous, because in doing so, some have entertained angels. Well, that's in the New Testament, but maybe her mother said something like that too. Entertaining angels indeed. That was okay for the likes of Abraham. He was rich. He had plenty of food to share with travellers. But I don't have anything. And now this stranger is asking me to give away the last that I have. To further divide up and share my son's last meal. Surely my son is my first priority. Surely God wants me to be a good mother rather than a friend to a complete stranger. Family comes first, right? It feels so holy, so righteous, so noble, and such an important principle for keeping society civilized. But throughout scripture, this norm is challenged. Caring only for my own family, my own kind of people, my own nation, is part of caring only for myself. The God of the Old and New Testaments calls us to share what we have with strangers and enemies, with outsiders. And in doing so, we learn to recognize in the other the very face of God. And if we don't recognize it at the time, Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, that Jesus will explain to us, in so much as you did it for the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. God is always greater than we imagine. And to limit the image of God only to my kind of other is to worship a God who's too small. An idol made in my own image. Not much different from gold or silver. Such a God is too limited to provide, to heal or to save. A God who reflects only my own identity, my culture, will be unable to hear the cries of the oppressed or see the plight of people enslaved. This widow has so little that 
Elijah's outrageous request that she share the little she has comes as a kind of epiphany. She has so little that it cannot save her or her son in any case. Sometimes God speaks through our poverty to strip away all that we cannot really rely on so that we learn to rely on the one who loves us. Elijah's request is outrageous, but transformative. It challenges all our assumptions. The woman is redefined. She sees herself as helpless and hopeless, as someone with nothing to give, nothing to share. Elijah challenges that perception. He calls her to live into a new sense of personhood. She does have something to give. There is something she can do. She is called to a generous act, an act of faith in a generous God, called to believe that her life and the life of her son is not in her own hands, called to throw herself herself into the arms of a generous God. She's transformed from being a slave to poverty with no choices into a generous, brave, powerful woman who reflects the very nature of God and feeds God's prophet. That's quite a transformation. What sort of God is God? Is he asking too much of me today? And could it be that what he's asking of me is the very thing that will transform me into his likeness? What sort of God is God? Because it really matters whether God can or cannot provide for the little ones. If he can't, we are slaves to the cruelty and arbitrariness of this world. But what if God loves us enough to send his only son for us, to us? What if God's kingdom is a kingdom of humble service? What if Jesus really is Lord over all the lords of this world and it's an upside-down kingdom where the servants are the greatest? Then we are children of light and hope, children of a powerful peace, children of a love that conquers death. So like Elijah and the widow, we are transformed, no longer passive victims of our neediness, no longer slaves of all that the world throws at us. By grace, we become active, empowered people who show God's face to the world by sharing what we have, sharing who we are, and declaring who the world is and who our neighbour is. Children, God longs to welcome home. This crucible is a place of transformation, but even now the story isn't over. There are more challenges ahead. And after the oil and the flour lasts for many days, The widow's son becomes sick and then dies. And she does what many of us, maybe most of us, would do. 
She interprets these terrible events according to a small view of God, a mean view of God. And the man who represents God is seeing as being vindictive, condemning without mercy. Oh, man of God, she says, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? Elijah doesn't correct her theology and he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't take offense. Instead, he shares her grief. And he invests his whole self, body and soul, in pleading for the child's life. When Elijah first met her, he asked her to give him her son's last meal. This time, he asks for the boy himself, his lifeless body. Give me your son. social significance of a son was crucial. He was her dearest possession, the dearest thing to her heart. But culturally, there was even more at stake, for a woman's identity was defined by her relationship to a man. She was a daughter, a wife, a mother. Her son is all she has left. Without him, she can own nothing, she can be nothing. Her whole identity, emotional and cultural, is tied up with being the mother of this child. And Elijah says, give me your son. Of all the outrageous requests. The story of Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac is well known. And it's a powerful antidote to the prevailing culture of surrounding nations where human sacrifice and child sacrifice was practiced at various times. The end of chapter 16 also seems to have a veiled hint at the possibility of the obscenity of child sacrifice in the rebuilding of Jericho, taking place under Ahab's rule. The scripture says, give me your son, not that we should put our children to death, but because God will substitute a ram for Isaac and for the widow, her dead child is raised to life. And for us, Jesus Christ is our life, God's own son given that we may live forever. But if you've lost a child, through death or rebellion. This is hard to hear. Why can God not raise my child to life? Why must I live the rest of my days with this void? We aren't told why. But today, for those who ache, for children they never had, for those breaking their hearts, for children lost or torn away, Hear this call. Give me your child. The call comes not from an angry God punishing us for our sins. Instead, from a God who loves to heal, to restore. The God of life who loves us. There is life to live. There is death to conquer. And after three days or three years... Three lifetimes. 
we will be raised to the new life God has prepared. So whatever you hold most dear today, whatever it is you feel you're losing or have lost, God says, give it to me. Give me your child. Trust me with your pain. Trust me with your life and the life of your loved ones and the health of your community. And God loves us more than we love ourselves. By the same power that was at work in Jesus Christ to transform the brutality of crucifixion into redemption for a lost world. God is at work to transform our sufferings into new creation, new life. In childbirth, there is pain. We can hardly think ahead to the joy that is promised. And yet, the pain will pass and the new life will come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.